All right. Hey, I'm, I'm really excited because today we start a new book of the Bible. And so very excited about the Gospel of Luke. Part of me is sad because I was so into Genesis. I've, I feel like I've grown more personally and learned so much from it. I hope you got at least a percentage of what I got, because I, I, but I'm going to miss it. But I'm that much more excited about Luke. And the reason I want to go into Luke, not only because if, you know, if you've been around Revolution Church very long, you know we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, but we also alternate Old New Testament, New Testament, go back and forth. So after Luke, we'll go back to another Old Testament book. But I wanted to get into Luke because we've already done Matthew and Mark, but I wanted to know Jesus better. I mean, it's great to study Genesis and Deuteronomy and books that point to Jesus. But then Luke is like, here's Jesus. <laughs> we're not just pointing to Jesus, we're presenting to you Jesus. And so you're going to be standing there for a little bit. So just relax, because I have a long introduction here. Fairly long. Okay. All right. Really good Sunday school, easy question for you. How many Gospels are there? there that's a good Okay. I'll, good technicality there. How many uh, accounts in the Bible are there four? Good, good, good job. And so we see them right there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we need these four. Some people say, well, why not just one? And do they contradict each other? Number one, they don't contradict each other. And number two, if there was a car accident and the police come to investigate the, the scene, they're going to go over, if there's, let's say there's four witnesses. They're going to separate the witnesses. You ever seen them do that? They'll separate the witnesses. They don't listen to each other, and they don't try to collaborate their answers. And they'll ask the first witness, what happened? They say, well, the red truck hit the blue car. Okay. Then they'll go ask another person, okay, so what did you see? Well, the old guy driving this car hit the young lady driving that, the, that car. Oh, okay. Is that a contradiction? No. So ask a third person, what just happened? The Ford hit the Chevy. Oh, wow, you know your cars. In fact, it's a 2021 Ford and a 1967 Chevy. You know, they got those details down. No contradictions. They're seeing it from different angles. And when you put them all together, we see even more. But it's not just trying to put things together. They had different audiences and they had different messages. Um, first of all, Matthew was writing primarily to the Jews. That doesn't mean we can't read it, but it was primarily to the Jews. And you can see a lot of Jewishness in the gospel of Matthew. Mark was writing primarily to the Greeks. You see a lot of philosophical terms in there because he's appealing to the, 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 uh, the, the people who had been learning from Aristotle and Plato and all that. And then Luke, we'll see here, he's writing primarily to Romans slash Gentiles. And then John, just to finish thing, writes it to the church. That's why John is so different than all the others because his is more a theological treatise and so you see that the difference in different Gospels. But also, their theme was different. Matthew's theme, because he's writing the Jews, was Jesus is the king of the Jews. And then Mark is writing to, again, Greeks who believe that the gods became little gods like Hercules and things like that. But he's like, no, this truly is the son of God. He's different than all the others. Luke, as we'll see here, the son of man. Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself more than any other term, the son of man. It sounds like, well, does that just mean he's biological? No. If you read the Daniel and Ezekiel, the Son of Man is the physical representation of God coming in judgment. So that's why this phrase ticked off the Pharisees more than anything else. When he said that he's the Son of Man coming in clouds of judgment, like, you're saying you're God? You're the physical manifestation of God? They wanted to pick up stones and kill him. So, uh, and then John, his main theme is God the Son. And so he's proving that Jesus is indeed God. We won't get into all that. So let me, let's just talk about some basic things about Luke. First of all, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. Now, this is really good for Paul because he got beat up and killed so many, uh, attempted to be killed so many times. I mean, they, they stoned him multiple times. They beat him. They whipped him. And Luke's like, yep, here we are again, binding these wounds. It's a good thing you got a doctor here, Paul. And so he traveled with them, and that's God's little sense of humor there, that you need a physician with you full-time traveling because you're going to get hurt so many times. Um, but he's also, he's beloved. He wasn't just, you know, um, some doctors have a bad bedside manner. <laughs> we have some nurses in here who could attest to that. In fact, um, in my most recent hospital stay, I tend to find myself there every now and then, um, 
I was talking to one nurse. I said, have you noticed, is it just me, that doctors are a whole lot nicer than they used to be? And she said, oh, yes. I said, is it something they're teaching in the colleges now? They're, they're actually having a class on bedside manner and, and telling these uh, doctors not to be so arrogant. And she said, no, here's what's happening. She said, there, there's so much competition in the hospitals for you, for patients, that some hospitals were losing. And then when they did surveys, they found the number one reason that patients would not go back to a particular hospital was the doctors were rude. And so they started telling these doctors, if you want to do business with us, you better get a good survey because we're going to have surveys. How did the doctor talk to you? How did he treat you? Do you feel like he was competent? And if you don't get a good survey, we're swapping you out for somebody else. So now all of a sudden these doctors who want to be millionaires are being super nice. You know, so, but Luke wasn't one of those doctors. He wasn't, he didn't think he was God. He was very humble and, and Paul calls him beloved. He really loved uh, Luke the physician, for not just for binding up his wounds, but for traveling with him and just for his heart. David Guzik, who's becoming one of my favorite theologians, said, uh, and you can actually hear a lot of his stuff online, he's still alive today, unlike many theologians who I read are dead. Uh, David Guzik said, this account has all the proper academic and scholarly credentials. You can tell it's written by someone with a PhD, in other words, but it is written for the man on the street. Luke wrote so that people would understand Jesus not so they would admire Luke's brain and literary skill. So what's interesting is when you read the first four verses of Luke, it's written like an academic paper. If you were to read it in Greek, you'd be like, wow, he's using a very extant vocabulary there. He's being really prolific. And then all of a sudden he picks up verse five and he uses what's called Koine Greek. It's like the street language. It's like, then he starts slow, uh, throwing out slang and all kinds of different words. It's like he's showing you, hey, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not trying to prevent, uh, impress all you academic crowd, but I want to show you that at least I do know what I'm talking about. But now I'm going to talk to you every day, ordinary people, and I'm not going to talk like your average doctor. Some people think that this was actually a legal treatise that he wrote Luke and Acts to Theophilus, and Theophilus was Paul's lawyer in Rome. So he's putting together a theological and legal treatise so that Paul can use this in his defense. That, hey, I'm not out there just preaching heresy. I'm not a cult leader. This, all these things actually happen as he's having his trial before Caesar in Rome. We don't know if that's exactly right, but it's a pretty good theory. Um, there are dozens of stories that are unique to Luke that are not in the other Gospels. For example, the Good Samaritan. We all know that story, right? The prodigal son. And literally, there's 20-some-odd stories in Luke that aren't in the other Gospels. So you, Luke is very unique in that regard. Luke also emphasizes the Holy Spirit and prayer more than any other Gospels. Um, the others don't underemphasize under it. It's just Luke is putting more of an emphasis on this. And the focus in Luke is very, very clear. By the stories you can talk about, he's talking about the down and out. The people that culture at that time and even still today didn't respect or honor. Women, children, even tax collectors who hated the poor. That is the focus. That's the heroes of Luke's stories. And then Luke is a Gentile, which is pretty amazing. All of the rest of Scripture is written by Jews. But here, Luke writes, when you count by volume, he actually writes more than Paul. So God's truly showing that the kingdom of God is spreading to the world. It's not just for Jewish people anymore. And it was written around 65 AD. Some people date it 90, 95, even 100. But the latest archaeological evidence shows it was much, much younger. Now do some math here. What year did Jesus die and rise from the dead? 33. So here, this is 32 years after. Are there people still alive when this is written who saw the resurrected Jesus? Yeah, very many of them, okay? So let's say, let's say you were the Apostle John, and you were 20 years old when you, and I'm just throwing out that number, when you saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, how old would you be now when this is written? 53. Good job, math people there. 53. So people are still alive. So now, notice that the Gospels, especially Luke, mention a lot of people by name. Why is that? Because if he says anything that you think is not true, just go talk to him. You know, when he says that... Um, one of the guys, the servant of, of the high priest, and he calls him by name Malchus and says, had his ear cut off? Malchus is still alive. If you don't believe he had his ear cut off by Jesus, and Jesus, I mean, not by Peter, and Jesus picked up his ear and put it back on, go ask him. He is still alive. 
So this is not a fairy tale. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is not, you know, the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is history, and there's people still alive. If I wrote a book saying that Barack Obama landed on the moon, you could prove that false because there's millions of people still alive saying, no, he didn't. He was, a, he was the president. He got two-term elections. He's a very popular president, but he didn't land on the moon. So the, this is just like people will say things that just are not true. Well, the Bible was written hundreds of years later, and Jesus, who was just a good man, it just the legend and the myth just kind of grew, and then they wrote this, and they basically wrote him in, as God. Absolutely not true. The world turned, the, literally, the world turned upside down. The powerful Roman empire collapsed because Jesus rose from the dead. Think about that. We call this 2023 because 2023 years ago, Jesus was born. This is how much he changed the world. So the Gospel of Luke, and my subtitle is Getting to Know the Real Jesus. And that, that's super important because a lot of us and people in the world, and us included, we have the way we want to see Jesus. And what I'm going to tell you is Luke is going to make you uncomfortable. Luke is going to present to you a Jesus like, well, I don't like that kind of Jesus. You know, um, many people have this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sissy Jesus. He could never hurt anybody. He never said a mean word. He's just Jesus. That's not it at all. If, if you think this is Jesus, you have not read the Gospels at all. There's the Mormon Jesus. The Mormon Jesus uh, is not God the Father. He is not equal to God. He is actually a created being because Jehovah God had intercourse with Mary, and that's how Jesus was born. And he's also the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, according to the Mormons. And uh, Lucifer went rogue because God gave the kingdom to Jesus and not to him. The Jehovah's Witness uh, Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel, a created being, and that's not true at all. In different parts of the world, we want to make Jesus look like us. There's the Korean Jesus. There's the African Jesus. There's the Chinese Jesus. What was Jesus ethnically? He was Jewish. He was not white. I remember one time, one reporter on Fox News said, well, Jesus is just a white man, a white man's religion. I'm like, have you not? Jesus is very dark-skinned. Christianity is a very brown religion. And when people teach in universities that Christianity is just a product of a white man of the West trying to impose their they oppress other, you know, other ethnicities. Christianity is very brown religion. Africa is where Christianity first exploded. It, and it, it just, they, they don't know his. People, the communists want to claim Jesus, that Jesus taught socialism. No, he didn't. Absolutely not. And then the Republicans want to claim Jesus, you know, that Jesus was, was a MAGA hat for sure. And, and then most people, though, they just want the cool Jesus. Hey, whatever you're doing, I'm fine with it. Good, you're good. You know, I don't care. Sin, no big deal. I'm a rebel too, you know. And then there's, you know, the, the gay Jesus. That Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yes, he did. He said from the beginning, God created a man and a woman, and that's marriage. And so don't say he didn't say it. And people want to embrace Jesus to do all kinds of things to endorse what they're doing. Jesus formed you in his image, not the other way around. And again, I'm not just trying to blast people on the outside. I tend to want to read Jesus into the Bible a certain way because it, sometimes Jesus makes me uncomfortable. Uh, Jesus was a rebel and righteous at the same time. He definitely is an anomaly. Jesus, he made many happy, but he also ticked off a whole lot more. He healed some, and he tipped over other people's tables. He pronounced curses and blessings. He talked about love and peace and then judgment and eternal suffering and real hell. If your Jesus makes you feel perfectly comfortable, you have the wrong Jesus. Just want to challenge you that as we go through the Gospel of Luke. So, thank you, Karen, for being so patient. <laughs> All right. Would you read God's word for us and let's follow along as she reads. things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world, word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
Theophilus. You can scoot this way if you want. Just give it a good yank. There we go. <laughs> okay, cool. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing in the right side of on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elisha to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel how shall i know this for i am an old man and my wife is advanced in years and the angel answered him i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So uh, when I was 26 year old, years old, I had like what they call severe maxillofacial surgery. Like everything from the nose down was reconstructed. <laughs> I had a what they called a Jay Leno jaw. Remember Jay Leno and how prominent his jaw was? Well, my jaw was very prominent had a severe underbite, and my jaw was growing crooked to the left. So it was causing me to grind like all my molars, and I was having teeth like break up. And they said, you're going to lose a lot of your teeth if you don't have this surgery. So I had this surgery, and I had to wear braces again as an adult. And so for a year, I wore braces, putting my teeth where they would be once the surgery was complete. So, um, so they did this. Two surgeons did a five-and-a-half-hour surgery on me, and they took a fragment of bone out of this jaw, from here and a little bit less out there, so the jaw came back and like that. They detached my total upper uh, jaw, yeah, whatever teeth up here, from the skull, dropped it down, went up into my nose, reconstructed my nose, trimmed the turbinates so I wouldn't be a mouth breather anymore. That didn't totally work. But anyway, then they brought, they reattached that top jaw, brought it forward so I'd have a normal bite. And I asked the, the surgeon, I said, what about all the skin? If all this is being brought back, he said, oh, your skin will just draw back. Well, no, it didn't, as you can tell by my puffy cheeks. But anyway, I do have a good bite now. And, uh, but one of the funny things was is after the surgery, they put a mouth guard, like a football player would wear, in my mouth. And then they closed my mouth and they banded all my braces together. So it wasn't just like this. I couldn't even do that because I had a bite. So I was mute for six weeks. I could not talk. So I didn't know sign language. So I'm writing notes and all that stuff. And 
I'm trying to communicate with my kids and my wife and all that stuff. And it was really weird. And it was just, here I am, I'm a pastor and I can't talk for weeks. And so it was really, really weird. And this is, I kind of think that's how Zechariah felt with all that he went through. So really a fascinating start to the beginning of Luke. And we're going to divide it up this way. There's this articulate introduction and there is the aged couple and the angelic announcement. And then finally, the fourth point will be the astonishing fallout from all this. So first of all, he starts off by saying that many have undertaken this. Many. Wow, who is that? Well, we know that we're, we are certain because of manuscript evidence that Mark was already written. Mark seemed to be the template for the other guys to build off of. So Mark was already written. It was very, very likely that Matthew was also written. But that would probably be the only two because we know for sure John was not written yet. And so what are these other, I don't think two qualifies as many. Well, there's other people that are writing about Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if this is the guy who changed the world and people's primary form of transporting communication is through written form, a lot of people are writing, hey, the other day I was at this hillside and this guy named Jesus who claims to be the Messiah he fed like 20,000 of us with a few loaves and fishes. And so a lot of people are writing about this. It doesn't mean that everything that's being written was inspired or was perfect or was part of the canon of scriptures. But it was very popular at this time for people to be writing about Jesus. And so, so uh, Luke is saying, hey, I'm one of those guys, but this is going to be different. I'm going to do a very careful treatise of this. Um, let me, sorry, wrong way. Also, these, many of these were non-canonical writings. Some of those were good. There's people who recorded things about Jesus that were good, but again, maybe not inspired. But there was also non-canonical writings that were wrong. You know, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, those are all written by heretics trying to prove that Jesus wasn't God. And so the way that we know they're heresy is because they don't, they, don't, they don't agree with the rest of the Bible. The standard for what is in the Bible and what is not the Bible is the Bible itself. It's kind of like, as I've said before, sun, moon, and stars, planets, and moons. Stars, planets, and moons. That's three different categories of celestial uh, uh, beings or uh, celestial objects. Sorry. How do we know which one's which? Does somebody write a book on telling you which one's which? No, it's from observation. They become self-evident. The same is true for things that are in the Bible and things that are not in the Bible. The law of non-contradiction. You can't have two books that contradict each other and both of them be scripture. They could both not be scripture, or one could be right and the other wrong. But that's one of the first laws as non-contradiction. There's also several others we won't get into this morning. But he says here that the ESV says compile a narrative. And really it could be better worded to set forth in order a narrative. Because the word compile, you could compile something and not be in chronological order. In, in the Hebrew mind and in the Middle East, even to this day, people don't care about chronology. In the West, we're obsessed with this. When we tell a story, we want to tell it exactly in order. In fact, if you don't tell exactly in order, so it's, oh, no, actually, this happened first, and then that happened. Okay, yeah, we will correct each other. But back then, they would talk about things based on a theme. Like if they're discussing miracles, they'll say that Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this. And then they might talk about healings, and they'll do this, this, and this. And they'll say, wait, but then this, this one happened first? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these miracles over here. I'm talking about healings over here. I'm not trying to put them in order. I'm trying to stick to a theme. And so you see the other Gospels more that were theme-oriented, but Luke is saying, no, I'm going to appeal to the Western mind, to the Romans and to the Greeks and to the Gentiles who don't think the way you do, so I'm going to set in order this narrative. And so you'll see Matthew, or Luke follows a pretty strict chronology. And he talks about what I'm going to set in order are the things, and that's an understatement, that have been accomplished among us. What kind of things were accomplished among them? Among them? What did they see? Walking on water? Lazarus raised from the dead after being dead four days? Oh yeah, by the way, the resurrection, not only to mention the crucifixion, these things, and they happened among us. This happened in our day and time. This was a contemporary thing. See, that, that also goes back to what I was saying. Luke wasn't written years and centuries later. This happened among us. He means in our presence. These are things that happened during our era. Like for example, when your grandkids talk about 9-11, you'll say, yeah, well, that happened among us. That happened in my lifetime. That's the difference between eyewitness and, and not. So he said, and I'm going to do this just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Luke is saying, I'm not an eyewitness. It happened during my time, 
But I didn't see these things just like Matthew and Mark did. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to eyewitnesses, and I'm going to talk to ministers of the word that have delivered all these things to us. In 2006, Dr. Richard Bachman of Cambridge University, no small institution there, published his most widely read work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, a book that defends the historical reliability of the Gospels. I can't emphasize to you enough, probably the most important word in Luke chapter 1 is eyewitnesses. These are not fables. These are not fairy tales. The Bible is not just trying to exaggerate things. Eyewitnesses saw these things that we're going to study for the next year uh, in person, face to face. Keep in mind that Luke was what? He was a physician. He was a doctor. His career was to carefully use science based on research. Even doctors back then did these things, okay? In fact, there's many ways that the doctors back then may be better than today because they had holistic herbal cures, where today they're trying to pump you full of things that make other people like Pfizer rich, okay? Not all medicine is bad. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But he was a doctor. He had a, an ex, he had a very extensive education. He was used to researching, testing, and using science to, to do what he did. In June of 2016, I interviewed theoretical physicist Professor Lawrence Krauss and asked him the same questions I asked the university students. I was limited to only asking questions, but he was very gracious and it was an honor to meet him. Lawrence, why are you an atheist? Well, you know, I, uh, I don't call myself an atheist uh, any more than I call myself an a-leprechaunist. Uh, uh, in fact, I don't label myself as is. I, I, the only ist I might use is a scientist. And that's really important to me because as a scientist, I don't accept things without evidence. And, uh, and there's certainly no evidence for, for God. And, the, and all the stories about the different gods, as there have been thousands of them, all seem equally ridiculous. Yeah, probably at least millions. Are you open to evidence? I'm absolutely open to evidence. In fact, I change my mind all the time. That's the great thing about being a scientist. Unlike religion, we don't assume we have all the answers. In fact, we ask the questions, and we let nature tell us the answers. I know you picked up this book before. Do you believe this book could make itself? That it, let, me, let me give you this scenario. That ink fell on the pages, colored photos just manifest when ink fell out of nowhere. The sentences became coherent with periods and commas? Uh, no, but no, which is one of the reasons why the way that the Bible was written by humans, because it didn't make itself. There were some bunch of largely literate Iron Age peasants who, who were trying to understand the world and didn't know much about science, and they wrote in different forms, books, and, uh... Okay, so, the, the, you know... Did you hear what you just said, this atheist professor? The Bible was written by literate Iron Age peasants. Now, think about that statement. First of all, it's 100% false. For someone with PhDs to make that statement, there's one of two things that are going on. He's either willingly ignorant, like didn't even Google five minutes who wrote the Bible and find out that it was Luke, a physician with a PhD himself, Paul with the equivalent of three PhDs, King David, not just, not a peasant, King Solomon, one of the richest, wisest men in the, that the world has ever known, and that's history, that's not just Bible. Just go on and on of the people who were extremely educated who wrote the Bible. But he makes the statement, peasants, Iron Age peasants, like almost barely cavemen. Now, either, that, either he's that ignorant, not willing to even find the truth, or he's lying to you. Pick which one. He doesn't want to believe the Bible. That's why he will dismiss it by saying, written by peasants. That's the most ignorant statement I, I think I've ever heard. And like I said, I think it's intentional. I think he knows better. I think he's out to deceive our college students and charge them $120,000 to do it. So it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. There's, he's referring again to making this very systematic and then he says, for you, most excellent Theophilus. This goes back to the whole idea that maybe Theophilus was the lawyer defending Paul in court. It's like your most honorable, like the way you refer to a judge. He's most excellent referring to this lawyer. And by the way, the Theo Theophilus means God follower. Theo, God, Philus, follower. And it's interesting that, that Theo Theophilus either, I believe, is investigating Christianity or has become a Christian and is now a new young Christian somewhere in the process. So he says that you may have certainty. Everybody say certainty. 
certainty concerning the things that have been taught. See, a lot of people have this idea that you can't be certain. All this happened so long ago. How many of you are certain that George Washington is the first president? I would hope so. Raise your hand if you know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but you weren't there. You didn't see it. But guess what? There were tons of eyewitnesses, and we have historical accounts, even though they're hundreds of years old. And yet there's more evidence that Christ lived and died and rose again by manuscripts than there is any other historical event on the planet. It, it changed the world. And it's something that we can be certain of. You don't have to be in doubt. Think about this. 1 John 5.13, I write these things, not, to, not, not just I'm telling you things, I'm putting this down in writing, that you who may believe in the, the Son of God and that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Ask the average religious person on the street, are you going to heaven when I die? Their answer will be, I hope so. And then verse after verse, and I'll give you many more, that say you can know. You can know with certainty that Christ rose from the dead, that he lived, he did all these things. And you can know that when you die, you will be with him and have eternal life. Listen also to what Colossians 2 says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. God doesn't want you to have a little bit of assurance. He wants you to have full assurance. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, not to live a life of doubt. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things which have been taught. So he's telling Theophilus, you can be certain about what I'm telling you here. So let's move to the next point, the aged couple. This is where our story begins. In the days of, of Herod, king of Judah, can you look up in history when Herod lived, when he reigned? Yes, you can. You also find out the Herods, three of them, were bad dudes. They were so paranoid about their power, they would kill many of their kids or their relatives, anybody who was a threat to their throne. And by the way, he wasn't a king in that sense. Who is the king of the Roman Empire? It's Caesar, but he wanted to be called king, but really he was just a magistrate. And so this tells you that when people write fairy tales or legends, they don't give you a certain time and place in history. They say, once upon a time. But this isn't just once upon a time. This is a specific time in history. And again, you can read what Herod even had to say about these things and his interactions with this Messiah. So there were, there, during this time, during this period, there's a guy named Zechariah. There's a book in the Bible named Zechariah. He's named after him. And he's of the division of Ab 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 Abijah. And then, so he had a wife, also was from an, a priesthood, Aaron. There's an Aaronic priesthood and there's a Levitical priesthood. Zechariah is from the Levitical priesthood, Elizabeth. So priesthood is in their family. And her name was Elizabeth, which means pledged to God or God is my oath. Great name there. And they were both righteous. Now follow this. As they describe this elderly couple, they're both righteous before God. That's what matters most. You can appear to be righteous to everybody else, but live a double life. <laughs> but these people were not only righteous by, in the sight of others, they were righteous before God, and that's what matters most. And they walked blamelessly. So not only did they live right, they also didn't do wrong. There was nothing you could point out and say, yeah, you do all this good stuff, but you did this back then and five years ago or whatever. And in, they were obeying God in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They weren't following culture's measurement. They weren't following society's standards. They were following God's standards. And again, that's the one, that's the one that matters most. But they had no child. Now think about that. They're righteous. They're blameless. They're keeping all the commandments. And just like every other Jewish family, they wanted to have lots of kids, and God gave them zero. Wait a minute. I thought if you do what's right, God gives you what you want. No, that, that's really bad theology. That's the, the theology of Job's friends. Remember, Job was righteous before God. He was living a great life. Not perfect. Nobody is except Jesus. But he's living a perfect life. And Satan says to God, the only reason he loves you and the only reason he does all this stuff is because you give him all this stuff. I mean, look, he's one of the richest men on the planet. Of course he's going to love you. And God's like, oh, really? Take it all away and see what happens. He says, you just can't kill him. So in a, in a day, like in an, within moments, all of his possessions are stolen. Things are burnt. Thieves come in. Nearby armies steal things. And then the worst of all, 
All 10 of his kids are in the same house celebrating, having a big feast. And a typhoon comes through, collapses the roof, kills all 10 kids. Losing one kid is rough. Imagine losing all 10. And then he's plagued with boils from head to toe. His health is taken away. The only thing that's not taken away, and Satan knew what he's doing, was his mean wife. So she could stick around and nag him. And, all, and Job has three friends that come to him, and I'll give them credit. For seven days, they just sat in silence and wept with him. That's some pretty good friends in that regard. But then they messed up and started talking, which most of us do. And they started telling Job, come on, Job, let's be real here. What's the big sin? What are you doing wrong? Because you know how our theology says, you do bad, God curses you. You do good, God blesses you. And Job's like, your theology is whacked. I have done nothing wrong. In fact, I wish I could have a conversation with God and a trial so that we could get all this aired out and I could find out if there's something I've done wrong or at least what he thinks I've done wrong so I can tell him I haven't. And of course, after all these long conversations with all their friends, with their bad theology, God steps in and says, who are you guys to even begin talking about this? You have no idea what you're talking about. I cause it to rain on the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. That's not the way I operate. But that's what the prosperity gospel teaches us today. If you do this, this, and this, man, you got a Rolex and a Mercedes, and you're just going and blowing. And if life is just falling apart, oh, you must be doing something wrong. What did Zechariah and Elizabeth do wrong? It says they're righteous before God. They were blameless, a living great. And yet everybody else can have kids and they don't. The one thing that a Jewish woman wanted more than anything in the world was to have a child. And she didn't. And her name in town is Baron. Oh yeah, there goes Baron Elizabeth. Hey, did you talk to Elizabeth the other day? Uh, which Elizabeth? Baron Elizabeth? That, that, was her, that was her name as we'll read here in a little bit. So the reason they didn't have kids, it says right there, because she was barren and they were old. Not because they were sinful, not because they weren't prospering or doing like that. It, there's the reason. And, and what does, or who does this uh, elderly couple with no child remind us of? Abraham and Sarah. This is on purpose. Luke is tying the Old and New Testament together. We just got done with Genesis, learning about this old couple. And here, to be a hyperlink back to Genesis, he's saying, okay, I'm about to do something big. Remember, Isaac was the firstborn to start the nation of Israel. Israel would give you the Messiah. Well, here's an elderly couple that's going to announce the Messiah. And of course, Mary's birth will be a parallel. Here's two women that have no business having babies. One's old and barren, and one's too young and has never been with a man. And yet they're both got babies, and it's a parallel story. So that brings us to the third thing, the angelic announcement. So now, while he was serving, so he's, he's a priest, his job, and there's thousands of priests at this time, okay? Somebody said as high as 20. I think that's kind of high. Some say as low as eight, but there's maybe let's just split the difference and say uh, 14,000 priests alive at this day. And so they're all serving in the temple, doing lots of things in the nation, and they take turns doing their, their service. So he's, what's happening is he's serving God. What's, what's about to happen? The angel's going to announce to him the best news he's ever heard. And when did he, this is important, when did he give him this announcement? While he was serving. I see a principle there. When you're serving God and doing great things for Him, not even necessarily great things, ordinary things, just serving God, that's when God speaks to you the most. I'm not going to say He never speaks to you outside of that. But all throughout the Bible, we see people actively serving God, and then God speaks to them. And some people say, well, God, you know, uh, Pastor, I don't really know what to do with my life. I don't know what my career should be or where should I go to college. And you know what I tell them? Get busy serving God. In the serving of God, you will find your calling. You know, I started preaching before I was called to preach. Just because I love God's Word, I had the gift of teaching, I wanted to do that. And it was while I was preaching that God reinforced that and, and put that call in my life. And he's off, it's his division is on duty. In, in 1 Chronicles 24, King David divides all the thousands of priests into 24 groups. And they serve twice a year to cover up the year. And so um, that's what it means by that, this, his division. And according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot. Now, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Who? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Patrick's like, no, Lot means like casting dice or something like that. They had several ways um, to do it. They can mark stones and then shake it up in a bag and people, everybody reaches into the bag 
And this one says, okay, you get to cut the lamb, you get to, do, you get to clean the altar, and you get to burn the incense. There was three priests chosen every time they did this. The burning of the incense was the one you wanted to pull. One guy, he was basically the janitor. He had to clean up after the last sacrifice. The other guy gets to get all bloody, killing the next animal. But man, the incense, you get to go into the holy place and you get to say the prayer for the nation. Think about that. It's like being a pastor and you get to invite it to D.C. for the inauguration to, to hold the Bible and have the president get sworn in. That's what this is like. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that most people didn't get and the thousands of priests. And so this is one way they did it. Sometimes they did it by different color stones. Sometimes they did it by different lengths of straws. I believe after lots of study in the New Testament, it was rock, paper, scissors. I think that was how they... No, I'm just messing with you. Okay. That's Patrick's favorite though, right? Anyway, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So a lot of people, if they could fit into their work schedule, they'd get up in the morning, and this usually happened right after sunrise, and they'd gather around the temple, and that'd be part of their daily because this happened every day, that'd be part of their daily like morning devotion time. And so it usually happened really quick. You, you didn't, this wasn't something that went on for hours or lasted probably not much more than like 30 minutes. So hundreds of people, maybe even a thousand people, are gathered outside the temple while he's doing this. And while he's burning the incense, and I just, I kind of imagine he's praying after, and he's praying for the nation. And, and I picture, he's like, God, I, I know I'm supposed to be here praying for the nation, but... You know, my wife and I have been wanting to have a child. And maybe he's asking, or maybe he gave up on asking. Maybe, because what he says later is like, well, I'm old. How's this going to happen? So maybe that was a prayer he prayed a long time ago. Who knows? But he's in the middle of praying, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar. First of all, angels, you've heard me say this over and over again, but I can't help but repeat it. They're not the little Charmin babies with little wings or whatever, okay? They were mighty, powerful-looking creatures that, Everybody in the Bible who encounters one, what's the reaction? Scared to death, like fall down thinking they're going to either die or be killed. And what's interesting is the angel appears to him, and it's the angel of the Lord, and it says an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. Remember in the Old Testament, if it says the angel of the Lord, that might be pointing to Jesus coming in as a messenger from the Lord. And, uh, but here's a, just an angel. We know later it's Gabriel, so it's not Jesus. Anyway, what's the side here? Luke is really specific. He says the right side. He's not just throwing out little facts. He's, he's trying to point out something to us. If you were standing where Zechariah stood, on the outside, you would have, and I realize it's small, but you'd have the brazen altar where the sacrifice would be made. Once that sacrifice was be, would be made, Zechariah would look at that sacrifice. This is showing that blood is covering my sins. And so now I'm going to go over to the laver. This is where we get the word lavatory. Okay, I'm going to wash my hands, I'm going to wash my feet, and I'm going to say, God, forgive me my sins based on this sacrifice. And now I'm going to go into the temple, and on my left is a golden lampstand, the menorah. And this is the only light in the place, everything else. So it's dark, so that's an important factor. To my right is the showbread. This is the 12 loaves of bread, one for every tribe of Israel. Nobody could touch it until days later. Then the priest could eat that. And he, so he's walking between these two things, the light of the world and the bread of life, both pictures of Jesus, and he's going to pray. Okay, he's going to pray for the nation. Now, if the light is on his left, is he going to pray this way? No, he's probably not going to pray this way. If he really wants to see what he's doing with the incense, I would turn this way on this little three by five box here and burn the incense, okay? And the menorah is over there. So I picture him being here. And so now, if the angel is on his right, where's the angels coming from? The Holy of Holies. I, I, that's how I picture it. I think that's why Luke gave us this clue, is that he's about entering to the Holy of Holies and praying for the people here. And that's where Gabriel came from. He came from the presence of God. Because remember, the glory of God was over the Ark of the Covenant. So the angel came from his right, on the right side of the altar. So, you, here's a, a blow-up of that right there so you can p visualize everything I just said. So here's a cartoon version of what it might have looked like. And Gabriel's not happy, if you can see it on his face, because of his reaction. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> so Zechariah was troubled, which is what everybody does who encounters an angel. And when he saw him, fear. And this word fear here is like the 
the psychological word for um, uh, trauma, traumatized, okay? So he is traumatized and fear fell on him. And, and he basically has, the, you ever had that feeling of just a wave of, of fear or paranoia come over you? Especially like, let's, I, um, I'm not really claustrophobic, although probably my worst nightmare would be buried alive. That would be like, eh, you know, anyway. Um, but every now and then I get that and it's like really weird. And about a year ago I was at the dentist and they had my mouth propped open with the wedges. They got the suction. They got the tools. I'm wearing the glasses. They've got all these things around me. And I finally had to go, I don't, I just felt like literally from the top of my head, this warm feeling just come over all over me. And I just felt like, ugh, like I was about to be smothered. And I had to stop. And I'm like, okay, no problem, no problem. Just catch your breath. And it took me a, like 10 minutes. It was the weirdest thing I'd rarely ever have that happen. Take that times a thousand. That's how Zechariah feels right now. This wave of fear is coming over him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. <laughs> Typical angel answer. I think in heaven they have to practice that. Tell them not to be afraid. That's your first response. That's always your first word. And, and it says, but he says, the reason why I don't want you to be afraid is for or because your prayer has been heard. I'm here to answer, tell you there's good news. Now, whether he just got done praying that while he's saying the national prayer or he prayed it a long time ago, he says, your prayer singular has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. son. You've been praying for it. And now I'm answering that prayer. And you shall call his name John, which would be a surprise because in those days, you always named the boy after a relative. Either you as the dad, or maybe one of your brothers, or maybe your dad, the grandson. But nobody in his family, as we'll learn later, is named John. But the angel is making that very clear. He says, and you're going to have joy and gladness. That's why you have children, right? You have them first to have joy and gladness. You find out later they bring a whole bunch of mess and pain, right? But it's all mixed in together. It's all good. Anyway, joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. It won't be just you and Elizabeth. The, the whole town's going to be excited for you. And here's the thing. He will be great. You're not just going to have an average son, Zacharias. He's going to be great. Now, if you said that to people today, your son is going to be great. They're like, oh, he's going to be in the NBA? Oh, he's going to be valedictorian? Oh, he's going to be rich? God's standard of greatness is not our standard of greatness. It says he's going to be great before the Lord. Can I tell you, parents, I, I can't beg you enough. Strive for your kids to be great before the Lord, first and foremost. You can put a lot of time and effort into, we, we put a lot of time and effort into basketball, right? And a lot of you do. Um, you can put a lot of time and effort into academics to try to get your kid to be the smartest kid in the class. You can, try, you can send your kid to trainers to be the best girl softball player. You can do all that stuff, but if they don't love Jesus, you've wasted your time. And the kids need to know that you value godliness above any other talent or athletic ability or an intellect that the world would recognize. We want our kids to be great, but how? We want them to be great before the Lord. And your kids catch on to what you really get excited about and let it be excited about the things of the Lord. And then he made it very clear. And this guy, because he's going to be great, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, well, let me just, I'll let the Bible speak for itself. This was probably a vow of a Nazarite, not a Nazarene. In Numbers chapter 6, people who wanted to be specially dedicated to God's service in a unique way would not cut their hair, right? And they would never touch any alcohol whatsoever. Now, is this a commandment for everybody? No, it's not. But there is a correlation here when it comes to people who are especially serving God and especially people who strive for leadership. Listen to what Proverbs 31 says. It's not for kings. This is, this is Samuel's mother. Lemuel, we believe, was a nickname for, um, for Solomon. And she's writing this psalm to him, wisdom from his mom, said, you know, it's not for kings. It's not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink. And she tells him why. Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Two key words there, forget and pervert. In other words, not clear thinking. Not clear thinking. You need to be always thinking clearly, Solomon, if you're going to be king. Don't touch that stuff. And the more you see people being higher in leadership, the less alcohol they should be involved with. In fact, if you look at the list of qualifications for a deacon and qualifications for a pastor, it says deacons shouldn't be given to much wine, and then it says pastor's not given to wine. 
In other words, the higher you get in leadership, the less you should be involved in alcohol and that being an influence. I am a total abstainer, okay? But I cannot tell you, I wish I could, but I cannot tell you the Bible says no alcohol. I wish I could say that, but it doesn't say that, okay? But it does give you incredible caution. It says wine is what? A mocker. If someone mocks you, what are they doing? They're making you look stupid. And we've probably have all been around someone who's drank too much and they look stupid, okay? They may feel good, but everybody else thinks they're dumb. Strong drink is a brawler. It will really mess you up. What does a brawler do? It beats you up. It causes harm to you. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that wine is acceptable in moderation, but strong drink, things like what we call today like whiskey or vodka, which is designed for this much to mess with your judgment. The Bible says don't even touch that stuff. If you want to have this debate on whether Christians can drink or not, let's at least talk about what is allowed. He goes on to say, let me just say this this way. This is my summation of it. In the Bible, drinking is like debt. Think about this with me. It's not forbidden, but extreme caution is advised, and to be free from it is a good thing. I mean, almost everybody in this room has a mortgage. We know the Bible doesn't forbid debt, but it says be really careful about it. You should be careful about living off of credit cards and all that stuff like that. So if someone said, hey, I'm debt-free, would we congratulate them? Yes, we should. And so if someone said, I'm alcohol-free, I don't think we should make fun of them or think they're being legalistic. I think it's a good thing. If you have some debt, that's okay. If you have some alcohol, that's okay. But, it, but don't let it control you because debt will make you a slave just like alcohol will. In fact, it's interesting. This passage right here is very, it says that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. That's crazy. We'll talk about that in a second, how that blows my theology in a lot of ways. Um, but the Bible says he needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And watch the parallel verse here, Ephesians 5.18. I think Paul has to have this in mind. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's, it's immoral. It's wrong. But be filled with the Spirit. He's saying there's a contrast. Something happens when you drink too much alcohol. Your speech changes. Your thought changes. Your behavior changes. The same thing happens when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Your speech gets better. Your thoughts get better. Your behavior gets better. And so don't, let, don't be under the influence, DUI, of alcohol. Be DUI, divine under the influence, divinely under the influence. Be influenced by the Holy Spirit. So you can, and this really asks us a question. When life gets hard, which one do you turn to? The six-pack or the spirit? Do you medicate or do you meditate? Which one are you using to make peace on the inside? It's the Holy Spirit of peace that brings peace, but often we look for peace in a substance to relieve our stress. And it says that this, God, this baby will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, which he's pro- fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. Remember, that great Italian prophet Malachi, he was the last prophet of the Old Testament, right? How many years of silence between the last to this? 400 years, okay? What is the number of judgment? 40. How, long, how many years did they wander in the wilderness? 40, okay? How many days did people fast? 40. The number of judgment is 40. 10 is the ultimate. So the ultimate judgment, 40 times 10, God says, I'm not even talking to you. The next time you hear from me, you're going to have a guy coming in the wilderness and you better repent because the kingdom of God's at hand. So God says, enough of your idolatry. You're not even going to hear from me for 400 years. And so that's when all this is being fulfilled. So, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's also important because the... The Jews were looking for three people. They thought there was two messiahs, one that would suffer and one that would rule. They didn't realize that was one and the same, Jesus. They were also looking for Elijah, but we'll talk about that more as we proceed through that. And it says that this, in the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Matthew, Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied about until John. And if you are willing, accept it. He is Elijah. So he, Jesus is putting a stamp of approval that this, this prophecy is being fulfilled in John the Baptist. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord for the Lord a people prepared. So that's John's job is to prepare the way of the Lord. So Malachi, the prophecy about it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. All right, so 
we have that articulate introduction to prove his credentials. Then he goes into the story about this older couple and how God works a miracle for them. And the angel announces all this, and this is what it is. And so what should be Zechariah's reaction? Wow, great, fantastic, can't wait. But that's not it. He, there's astonishing fallout because he doesn't believe. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this is true? Come on. It's not, how is this going to happen? It's like, how shall I know this? You're saying all this, but I don't think I'm with you here. In fact, later he'll talk about his unbelief. So, and he's like, look at this. I'm old. I'm past making babies. My wife, have you seen her? She's old. In fact, she's been barren her whole life, so now she's barren and old. We're both really old. Uh, how's this going to happen? You see the skeptic in him? It's not like, really? What? How? It's not how. It's like, how can I know? Does, does this sound familiar? Who else asked a question like this, but not in the same way? Mary does, right? And of course, Abraham and Sarah did too. So it's a throwback to that, but it's also a, a foreshadow of Mary. See, the difference is, in a few verses later, Mary's going to say, how will this be? She's like, okay, I know it. I believe it, but I really can't figure out how this is going to happen. Because, you know, I, I haven't, I've been saving myself. I'm pure. I haven't been with Joseph, okay? I'm a virgin. I haven't done anything wrong. So she believes it. She just wants to know how it's going to happen. She doesn't question that it will happen. And that's important to this distinction. Zechariah is saying, how shall I know? Because he doesn't believe. It goes on to say, the angel answered. And I expect in a really loud voice, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> Are you serious? I stand before the presence of God. I've come to you. I've been sent by God to you personally to bring you good news. And you're going to do that? I mean, this was an angel having a temper tantrum in a in justified way. And what's interesting is, I don't know where anywhere in the Bible that an angel is allowed to go ahead and extract or exact punishment on somebody. But here he is. And I don't think this is sinful, obviously. He said, okay, you want to see something? Behold. You think I just told you something fascinating? Behold this. Watch this. You, you're a priest. Your job is to speak to people. You can't speak to people anymore. Do you see the irony there? You're going to be unable to speak. You're going to be silent. And you're going to be silent until all this takes place. So we're talking at least how many months? Nine months. Not six weeks like Gary. Nine weeks as a priest. It's like saying, you're a dentist. You can't use your hands. You're a hunter. You can't use a gun. He's basically taking his tools of his trade away from them. And so he says, because you did not believe my words. Now, Mary didn't disbelieve. She's just like, I don't understand how this is going to happen, not that if it's going to happen. He said, and what I said, it will be fulfilled. You just watch Zechariah. And I really believe that when the baby was born, Gabriel was there and said, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. And just said, see, I told you so. You know, maybe so. That's the Gary, the message version right there. All right. So now, uh, and the people were waiting for Zechariah. So they're outside, wait a minute. Man, usually this takes like 30 minutes. You know, kill the animal, spill the blood, go out in there and pray, come out and, and say something. But what's going on? i got to get to work. You know, this is, this is going to happen every day. People gather for this if they made that part of their morning devotion. And so I wonder what the delay is. But then he comes out, and he was unable to speak to them, just like the angel said. Now, here's what the priest normally would do. He would do what we do at the end of the service sometimes. Numbers chapter 6, the ironic blessing, not ironic blessing, ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, et cetera, et cetera. That's what he normally would say. He'd come out and was going, and people were like, do you hear him? I don't hear him. Anybody not hear what, what? What? Speak up. I can't hear you. Are you supposed to be blessing us right now? Can you spit it out? But he's not, he's not doing any of this. And they realize, oh my gosh, he's seen a vision in the temple. And he starts making signs, okay? He starts doing it. So how many of you have played charades before? Okay, so let's play charades, okay? Go ahead, tell me. Okay, so this game of charades is going on. And what's funny is this goes on for nine months. It's, it's funny. I won't spoil it for later. But anyway, 
So when it's time, and normally this, this service took place for a week. They would do, they would do six days, and they, he'd do the incense. He's doing this whole time, and again, every day he comes out, can't talk. They're like, yeah, we'll see you later. We're going to work. I know you can't talk, so no, we'll do the blessing ourselves, whatever it may be. And it says, and he went to his home. So he's thinking, not one, trying to be awkward here, but maybe they haven't had relations in a while because they're old, but now they will. And see, he has to play his part in this miracle. <laughs> he has to obey. So that happens. And after these days, his wife lives conceived. It actually happened. But here's what's interesting. Now, ladies, you know today, if, when a woman, when a young lady gets pregnant, how long do they usually wait before they tell anybody? Three months. And that's what, because if there's a miscarriage, usually it happens in the first three months. So you don't want to announce the good news and then all of a sudden have to reel it back in and take it back. Elizabeth waits five. She's like, wow, is this really happening? I'm old. Am I going to miscarry again? You know, is this really happening? And so she's waiting a little bit longer before she reveals the good news. Can't say I blame her. And thus the Lord, here's what she says. She gives credit to God. She knows this is a miracle. She doesn't give credit to Zechariah. She gives credit to God that, that, that what's happened to her. And in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, her whole life, she was barren Elizabeth. That's what they called her. That's what she was known among the people. And she didn't like that nickname. It was a horrible situation. That's what reproach means. And so what do we learn from this story? Let me give you several lessons. Luke and others carefully wrote the scriptures based on eyewitness testimony under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We can trust God's word. The scriptures give us certainty about God's promises and our salvation. God sometimes, though, withholds blessings from good people, not as punishment, but as part of his plan. And that doubting God's message can bring, uh, redundancy, there, sorry, typo, can bring humbling consequences if we doubt God's message. God orchestrated history to bring us John the Baptist who would prepare the way for Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was what? Yeah, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's John's goal in life, to get people to trust Jesus. It sounds like a pretty good goal. The true light, which gives light to everyone, that's all about Jesus, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him, referring to Jesus. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be what? The children of God. Have you made that decision? I was nine years old when I heard the gospel, when I heard that Jesus died for Gary's sins, and that he didn't just die, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And that if I would trust in him, and if I would give my life to him, at that moment, that time, when I made that decision, I was born again. I became a child of God. Have you made that decision? The Bible says that Christ suffered once for sins, for our sins. Jesus the righteous, for us the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, that he is your Lord, not just Lord of all, but Lord of you, and you will believe in your heart, personally, specifically believe in your heart, that God raised from the dead, you believe in the death and resurrection, what does the Bible say? You will be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this story. And Father, it's not just a legend or a myth or a fairy tale. This is history. And we're thankful that you worked in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth to bring us someone who would point us to Jesus. Father, may we be like them. And Father, I just pray for if there's one here today that not, has not been saved, that they would make that decision to give their life to Christ today because he gave their life for them. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. And on God's people said, amen. If you have more questions about salvation, please text me, call me. Let's get together and talk. Uh, Amanda, would you come help us with question and answer time? And while she's doing that, let me let me have uh, four guys. Yeah, uh, Nate, Isaiah, Nathan. Come on, y'all. Grab these business cards up here and pass those out. We have some um, new business cards that have that you can use to invite people to church. But most importantly, it has a QR code on that. That QR code, if they scan that with their phone, they're, they're, the, the business cards. You, you three guys pass those out. Get it. Everybody take three or four of those. 
pass those out because when they scan that QR code, it'll take them to a six-minute video where I'm presenting the gospel. So please do that. Use that as a tool to invite people to church, but more importantly, use it as a tool to invite people to hear the gospel. All right. Questions. Let's see here. All right. Who has a question for you? You can raise your hand if you don't want to text in. Charles, good question. So it was just a logical deduction. We'd already done Matthew. We did Mark. So now I want to look. I wanted to take the four in order, and I alternate Old and New Testament. But I also wanted, I could have picked any other book in the New Testament because there's a lot we haven't done. But I really wanted to just get back to the life of Jesus. I really wanted to study him personally and for us to get to know him. Because that's the whole point of, of my preaching is to get to know Christ. And if you didn't receive any business cards, just raise your hand, they'll find you. Okay, there we go. Zachary, you need some back there? All right, cool. All right. No other questions. Who else has a question by raise of hand? Anybody? All right. That's fine. One good question is great. Let's stand. We're going to be dismissed with a song here this morning.